0: Well, let's head over to Lamentations, the book of Lamentations together. So we are rocking along in the book of Lamentations. It's a short book, five chapters, but a, uh, a really profound book and a really unique book. There's really no book quite like it in Scripture. Certainly there are places in the Psalms and in the prophets that uh, you'll get lament songs, but this is the only book that its entirety is one long lament, one long funeral song, if you will. And uh, so just by way of review, let's think about, um, someone tell me, what's the history behind the book of Lamentations? Just summarizing the history. Yeah, it's about the Babylonian invasion of... Uh, Of Judah. All right, very good. Okay, she set the bar high, guys. So, uh, So jump in here. Okay, the Babylonian invasion of Judah. Why has that... Uh, invasion occurred. That's right. Is Israel and, and Judah's sin? Um, who is writing our? Well, well, back up a second. What is a lamentation? Just to make sure we're all on the same page. What's a lamentation? A song. It's a funeral song. Okay, and uh, the, in, especially in this culture, a funeral song was a very common way to express grief or mourning or sorrow, and, uh, and sometimes it was, sometimes it could have just been a community singing or a community lamenting, sometimes it could be an actual poem or song that was put together uh, for the occasion of the grief, and so what we have in the book of Lamentations is a divinely inspired funeral song, a song of grief or lament, remember lament, uh, even though it's kind of like, you know, talking about lament in church today is kind of a fad Lament is just the expression of grief. That, that's all it is. It's the expression of grief and sorrow. And um, so so tell me about, uh, with that background now, uh, what are we grieving over? What, what is Lamentations is grieving over what? The destruction of Jerusalem. The destruction of Jerusalem. Yeah, the, the Babylonian captivity, the destruction of the temple, the city, the walls... Um, and, and you think about that, we're going to look at some, some of the language here today. What made Jerusalem particularly special to the people of Israel? Any ideas? Yeah, the, the temples there. What did the temple represent? Going way, way back to the tabernacle days, what, what did that temple building represent? Yeah, it, it, it represented the presence of God with the people, and that, that was the center point of their communion with God, the, the religious sacrifices, the holidays, the um, the confessions of sin, the bringing of gifts to the altar, all of that centered around the temple, and it reminded the people every day that God was with his people, and people could come to God, and, and that was uh, the geography, the 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 facility by which they related to God. And so you can imagine how shocking it must have been for that building that stood uh, since the time of Solomon and even before that the the uh, tabernacle itself which was um, established in the time of Moses, right? That that is wiped out. And what that meant symbolically for the people. Uh, God destroying His own temple and, uh, and so uh, what brought about this destruction? It was the sin of the people. And uh, what did Jeremiah do? What was Jeremiah's role in all this? Besides being the, likely the writer of the poem here, what was Jeremiah's role in all of this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah he preached for over 40 years that the judgment was coming. He spent uh, <laughs> four decades warning the people. And what's interesting is, as we'll see today, um, you'd think that after hearing Jeremiah and other prophets watching Israel go into captivity under the Assyrian Empire, the empire that preceded the Babylonian Empire, you'd think that there might have been some soberness, some repentance, some openness. But one of the things that we're supposed to get in reading a book like this and reading the history behind it in the historical books in reading Jeremiah and his ministry in the book of Jeremiah is that the fallen human heart is really, really stubborn and hard. Uh, It is, um, well, Jeremiah says it, it's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And one of the things that we're supposed to be taken back by in reading a book like this is to recognize just how deep-seated our sinfulness actually is. And we know this, right? Every day, even as, as redeemed people, every day we do things when we know better. We, we do things knowing that's not what God says, this isn't good for me, and yet we're tempted to do those things sometimes, aren't we? And uh, that's why we need Jeremiah. Jeremiah helps us to drill down and see how depraved we all really are, and how stubborn we are, and how sometimes we, we know better. And that's why, again, getting way off subject here, but, but it's so important, guys. What Jeremiah says in his book is that that's why, in light of our stubbornness and our sin and, and the, the wickedness and our, our, our inability to learn from our mistakes, and part of all that is to see that we need the intervention of God Himself to do spiritual heart surgery to remove that heart of stone from our flesh and to give us a heart of flesh, to put His very Spirit within us and cause us to walk in His ways, that work of regeneration. In Jeremiah's day, they called that the New Covenant. Today, we would call that the Gospel. But we are hopeless apart from God's initiating rescue of us in our fallen nature and our stubborn being. That's our only hope. There's no renovation, there's no you know, second edition effort, there's nothing like that where we can simply try to be better and work harder, or maybe as society goes on, we we evolve into something better. None of that is a possibility, according to Mr. Jeremiah. And and part of the the drama that's playing out, we're going to read some of the hardest verses in the Bible today, guys. I mean, some of the most graphic, painful, difficult verses. And you and I are going to look at that and go, why would God do that? And part of the answer is we do not see the depth and depravity and wickedness of our sin near as clearly as we need to. And so this, this book opens our eyes to that. Now, again, you know we're not guilty of what the Israelites did in particular, and, and obviously we don't have a Babylonian captivity, but we do share the same heart with them, don't we? And we need the same Savior and the same rescue and the same intervention. And, and so we can read this to some degree with, with thankfulness in our heart saying, Lord, why have you shown us mercy that we don't go through something like this? Okay, so that, that gives us something of why is a book like this in our Bible? It's, you say, well, we can feel bad for them, their city burned down. Yeah, that's true. But there's something much deeper going on here in terms of what we're supposed to understand about human nature and sin and our need for a Savior. And even, I've said this before, in our day, like I said, lament is kind of a fad. Everybody's blogging on lament. Everybody's writing books on lament. And and what's a little bit disturbing to me as I'm looking at that is that all the emphasis of lament today in the church is on the fact that life is hard. And we grieve because life is hard. And that, and that's true, and we, we ought to grieve because life is hard. But what we see most often discussed in terms of true biblical lament is not lament because life is hard. It's lament because we are wicked. And we ought to grieve over our sin and long for a Savior and rejoice in His provision. That That, that the most significant lamenting we do is not over just general brokenness, although that's appropriate, but over our own sin and our own need uh, to see our need for a Savior. So, anyway, well, let's uh, think too. Um, the reason for the invasion, we've kind of caught up here, right? The reason for the invasion is their own sin, their own stubbornness, uh, generation after generation. And then we've talked a little about the, the nature of the lamentations, a funeral song. Remember, this is a beautiful poem. I, I wish all of us knew Hebrew as well as David Gibson did so we could look at this in the Bible and see the beauty of the structure. If you appreciate poetry and literature and um, genius in writing, this letter, or, or excuse me, this poem is, is really unmatched. You have uh, four of the five chapters are acrostic psalms, meaning uh, acrostic poems where uh, each line begins with a successive letter in the alphabet and so just that artistic uh, structure that uh, Jeremiah the author employs is really amazing and I'll try to point out some of the features along the way. That are masked by the English translation here. So anyway, okay, so with a little bit of background, let's jump into chapter 2 today. That's where we find ourselves with a little bit about divine discipline last week as a sort of a, uh, an overview of what we're going to look at today. So I just want to read this because um, you can imagine this This probably was chanted or sung originally. That's what they would do with a, a funeral song like this. And we don't know exactly how that would have sounded but what we do know was that this was designed for public proclamation. So reading it out loud, hearing it read out loud, is part of the nature of this type of book. Okay? So let me just read some of this. You follow along, and I'll try to to read it in a way that that is helpful to us, okay. First chapter two. How? There's our word again, right? Remember how the book starts. Chapter 1 starts with how, like how can this happen, how can this be, what went wrong, right? It it starts off with shock and, and question and confusion. And here's this chapter starts off the same way. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in His anger. He has cast from heaven to earth the glory of Israel and has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up. He has not spared all the, all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has thrown down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. In fierce anger, he has cut off all the strength of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. He has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire, consuming round about. He has bent his bow like an enemy. He has set his right hand like an adversary and slain all that were pleasant to the eye in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his wrath like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel, he has swallowed up all its places, he has destroyed its strongholds and multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning. And moaning. And he has violently treated his tabernacle like a garden booth. He has destroyed his appointed meeting place. The Lord has caused to be forgotten the appointed feast and Sabbath in Zion. And he has despised king and priest in the indignation of his anger. The Lord has rejected his altar. He has abandoned His sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord as in the day of an appointed feast. The Lord determined to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out a line. He has not restrained His hand from destroying. And He has caused rampart and wall to lament they have languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. The law is no more. And also her prophets find no vision from the Lord. That's hard even to read, isn't it? Do you hear the language? The Lord has come in His anger and His wrath. We talked about that last week. God's anger is not like ours. His is a objective, calculated, controlled response in light of His holiness and His goodness against sin and wickedness, even if it's in His people. And So His wrath has come. His judgment has come. And uh, some of the language here is really really challenging, isn't it? We think about God's anger and God's wrath. We talked about that last week. That uh, though God is slow to anger, He's patient. That His anger and wrath are working alongside of His mercy and grace. Those are not incompatible. They're not contradictory. They are both equally attributes of a holy God. Uh, We saw that many times the way God's mercy and His wrath Go together, uh, as we looked at last time. That His wrath is held back for a season. I remember Romans two talks about that. Uh, Peter talks about that, right? God's not slow, as some count slowness. So, I mean, God's not, uh, you know, bringing judgment yet. Because he's giving people time to repent. Romans 2 says his kindness, his forbearance, his impatience is being poured out. It's holding back his wrath to give people time to repent. So his patience and his mercy restrain his wrath and his anger for a season. And we've seen that here, haven't we? Over four decades, just in Jeremiah's ministry. Generations even before Jeremiah's time have been told this and warned this. So God has been very patient with the people. He's been very slow to anger. He's been very merciful. But now the day has come where God will discipline his people. And we see his anger and his wrath and you know, I can't help but think that one of the reasons we get pictures of God's wrath and anger on a human level like in the Babylonian captivity, like in some of the histories Uh, We have recounted in the Old Testament is that 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 picture of God's limited anger and wrath on earth is a very small picture of what the full expression of his wrath and judgment will be in the end and into eternity. And so there's a warning here too. Pastor Terry's talking about this now in Zechariah. Christ returning and, and uh, His victory as we'll talk about today. And, and of course what that means is all those who oppose to Him are judged and destroyed. So when we read this description, again we think, man, I, I'm glad that's not me. But this is, a, this is a small picture of what we all deserve and what all people who lack a faith in Christ will, uh, will undergo in the last days. Notice also, did you notice it in verses 4 and 5? Jeremiah repeats a phrase, and he's going to come back to this in chapter 3. He's bent his bow like what? Like an enemy. Verse 5, the Lord has become like an enemy. I think there are few things more tragic in Scripture when the Lord says to His covenant people, um, I'm pouring out My judgment on you. And from the standpoint of God's people, God doesn't look like a friend and a father and a God. He looks like an enemy, doesn't He? Um, that, That gives you a sense of how bad this must have been from the standpoint of the people. Um, this God that has been patient, that has rescued, that has provided and led, and you think all the history going back to the time of Abraham to the time of Moses to the time of Joshua to the time of the the early um, <clears throat> the judges of Israel and then the kings of Israel into this era, how God has led His people and been kind and provided and and saved and and protected, and all those sorts of things, and now the people see that God has become, as it were, like an enemy in this day of judgment. You notice the language, too, about all all of the components that were related to the worship of God and the celebration of Him and His ways and His instructions. Do you notice the language here? The tabernacle, the feast, the Sabbath, kings and priests. What what does the text tell us about what's going on there? What's going on in the day of God's judgment with those sorts of things? What's that? Yeah, they're cast away. God, God takes... This system that he's commanded, that he's built, that again, it was it was the connection between people and God. And he takes every single part of that system and annihilates it. They have nothing. And again, from the standpoint of the people, think of how dramatic that must have been, how horrible that must have been, that, that God would not just allow judgment and punishment but would actually destroy the very things that represented their relationship with God. Now, now a footnote, Jeremiah has said something all throughout his ministry and, and we wonder, are the people remembering this here? And we're going to find out in the next chapter, thankfully Jeremiah remembers it personally, right? And we'll, we'll get there in a minute. Or not in a minute, probably in a few weeks. But um, But you wonder, are the people remembering this? Because even as God has threatened and and called to repentance and threatened and called to repentance and, and appealed and explained and played all this out in the prophets for generations, you wonder, do the people remember that God, as a part of that message, always said, but there's going to be a remnant. There's going to be a rescue. This is not going to be a final, complete annihilation of people. This is a purging. This is a disciplinary act. But but it's not God throwing away His people and His covenant forever. No, God can't do that. God, God has made a promise, and He will be true to His promises and to His covenants. Uh, but what we see here, again, un, unlike I, I can't. Can you think of any other event in biblical history? where God goes to such extreme lengths to communicate to His people, there needs to be a change. Um, yeah, I mean the flood, yeah, it's, uh, yeah that, that, that is pretty dramatic too, isn't it? Yeah. So maybe that takes the first prize for all of humanity. I think if we're thinking about the nation of Israel and God's people, yeah, I you think of anything else? Wandering. Yeah, Sinai. hmm. Yeah. Pre- pretty pretty dramatic, pretty extreme. Yeah. One of you talking about what they think afterwards. Yeah. Ezekiel, it tells us that this remnant that is left after the fall of Jerusalem is sitting there saying, Okay, we're still here, so we're going to win. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And how many times has that happened where God has disciplined and He's spared His people? You know, think about Sinai. Think about, you know, the golden calf, and and Moses smashes the tablets, and He comes down and and uh, He calls the people to repent. Only the Levites repent of that group that was committing idolatry, and He says, "Okay, go to your tent, get your sword, kill everybody else." And you'd think that after that event everybody would be going maybe we need to walk with this god a little more carefully right maybe but they don't they're grumbling literally in the next chapter so it, it, again it, one of our takeaways is not oh what a horrible people and you know that horrible for you but but to see that's a reflection of the stubbornness of all of of all of us isn't it grant well, they had a couple times like with Caleb and Joshua after they came back yeah Right, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So we see that that stubbornness, that disobedience, that yeah, even in that. Um, And then, uh, did you catch this at the very end of the the where I stopped in the reading? What do you think it means when he says the law is no more? That's a really Again, I, you run out of vocabulary to, extra, to describe the extreme nature of what's going on, but that's a really, really extreme statement. The law is no more. What do you think he's saying there? No yeah. yeah, no more. Dis- yeah, in fact, we, we see the parallel there. Her prophets find no vision from the Lord. God says, enough. I'm done talking. I'm done instructing. I'm done warning. I'm done reminding. Um, and the Babylonians breached the wall. Uh, do you remember, just as a, a historic reminder here, do you remember the strategy that Nebuchadnezzar employed in order to finally take Jerusalem? Do you remember how it happened? There was a siege. Yeah, there was a siege. They surrounded the city. What did they do? They cut off the water and the the food supply. They basically cut off the the supply chain. And you're going to see the effect of that here in these next verses. Because part of the reason they were able to finally get in was everybody's dying of starvation and hunger. Everybody's um, malnourished. and, And you think of the soldiers and the their armies and and the the means of protection that they had and all of them were weakened by the surrounding of the city and essentially starving the city out. Um, but again we, we, we read that and, and you know I know this is challenging to a lot of people's theology is that why would God do this? Why would God do this to us? I thought he's a God of grace and mercy and, and of course he is. But he's a God of justice and righteousness and holiness. And he stands for what is true and right. And even if it's his own people, um, God is committed to training and to punishing and to bringing about uh, the restoration that we know he has in mind uh, for the future there. Notice secondly the state of the people. And this gets into... Again, some of the harder verses here. Look at verse 10. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground and they're silent. Think of that. The, the holiest men in the city, that the elders, the wise men, that, that elderly generation that people look to for direction and wisdom and counsel. And those men, Jeremiah says, are laying on the ground they have dust on their heads. They've girded themselves with with sackcloth, and I, I, you probably know what that means. What is the sackcloth and ashes, and what's that all about? Yes, sir. Mourning. Yes, that was the way in this culture that you expressed your grief and your mourning. Okay, so that would have been the appropriate attire and activity for grieving, mourning, lamenting. And he says, the elders of the city are laying on the ground in grief and mourning and sackcloth and ashes. Verse 10, the virgins of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. So you get the idea? From the elderly generations, the wisdom, the counsel of the older, all the way down to the young folks, the virgins, right? So from oldest to youngest, right? Spanning the ages, everybody's grieving, everybody's mourning, everybody's sorrowful. Jeremiah says, My eyes fail because of tears. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is poured out on the earth because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. When little ones and infants faint in the streets of the city, when they say to their mothers, Where is grain and wine? as they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom how shall I admonish you to what shall I compare you O daughter of Jerusalem to what shall I liken you as I comfort you O virgin daughter of Zion for your ruin is as vast as the sea who can heal you Your prophets have seen for you false and foolish visions, and they have not exposed your iniquity so as to restore you from captivity. But they have seen for you false and misleading oracles. All who pass along the way clap their hands in derision at you. They hiss and they shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city of which they said the perfection of beauty? A joy to all the earth? All your enemies have opened their mouths wide against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth. They say, we have swallowed her up. Surely this is the day for which we waited. We've reached it. And we've seen it verse 17 the lord has done what he purposed he has accomplished his word which he commanded from the days of old he is thrown down without sparing he has caused the enemy to rejoice over you he has exalted the might of your adversaries few places in the Bible express grief and sorrow like that God has done and followed through what he's been threatening for generations uh, he has destroyed his people and notice some of this people are mourning and grieving Jeremiah is overwhelmed with sorrow he's going to say a couple of times in this book his eyes, eyes fail because of tears um, you ever had that happen? You you've cried so much you can't see. That's that's Mr. Jeremiah. His heart is poured out on the earth and all of that. Notice the, the emphasis on the lack of food. This was the Babylonian strategy to starve out the city. They say to their, the infants and little ones say to their mothers, Where's the grain? as they faint in the laps of their moms and dads. Verse 19, we see this again in verse 19. Who are faint, the little, the life of your little ones who are faint because of hunger at the head of every street. We see it in verse 20. The little ones who were born healthy. And one of the things that was actually apparently going on was the cannibalism in families there's no food there's no water there's no other option people are dying and those dead bodies become a means of sustenance for those who are barely alive and you say how could that be how could God do that and the answer is our sin is that wicked our rejection of god is that extreme again i think i think one of the takeaways guys even though it, this is a different generation it's historical it's unique it, it's just just to ask ourselves the question Do I see my own sin as that extreme? And then hopefully the next thought is what a Savior we have. What mercy we've been shown. What grace that in Christ God has given us a heart that loves Him. And every day is being renovated by His Spirit to be more like Him. You know, one of the reasons that the Gospel and Jesus' work is not compelling to us, and it's not as valuable and and praiseworthy and motivational as it ought to be, is we have a very very benign view of sin. We have a very domesticated view of things we do every day that dishonor the Lord. And you read this and we're supposed to be shocked. We're supposed to go, no, how can that how can God do and that 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 emotion, that drama is designed to reinforce how horrible it is that we would reject our creator. And go after other gods and other means and make life about something else and, and deny His word and deny His ways. So thankful that we have a Savior. We're, we're going to celebrate communion today. And, and some of you have done communion hundreds of times, thousands of times. Don't hold that bread and that cup in your hand lightly. Because it's a reminder of how valuable and how amazing that gift of life and forgiveness and salvation really is in light of what we deserve. Nick, did I see your hand up? Or Alice? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and he's probably seen it yeah 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 that's true I think the hardest parts of, of, these, of this book really is, is the reference to little ones that we see repeated throughout the book. Um, and we know that, right? Sin, your sin, my sin affects other people. Your sin, my sin affects people that are not guilty in the same way of things that we're guilty of, Right? We know that, that babies, as cute as they are, come into the world fallen. We know that. But we read this and we go, it's not their fault, right? But the reality is, our sin affects other people. Our, our sin affects our families. Our sin affects our children. And, and that's, that's on display in a, in a horrible way in this chapter. And notice the indictment of the false visions of the prophets, Right? Jeremiah says, It's your prophets have misled you. Remember they were saying, remember that what they were saying? Jeremiah was going to the city every day, repent, the Babylonians are coming. And then there was a whole other, you know, group of prophets saying, No, he's wrong. There's going to be prosperity. God's going to deliver you, right? Just keep doing what you're doing. And and they misled the people. Indictment on the leaders for sure. Verse 18, the people cry out for help. Their heart cried out to the Lord. O wall of the daughter of Zion, let your tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief. Let your eyes have no rest. Jeremiah calls out to the people to cry out to him. Arise, cry aloud in the night. At the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the life of your little ones who are faint because of hunger. At the head of every street, the people cry out. Jeremiah encourages the people to cry out to the Lord. They cry. It's like now they cry out for mercy, but it's too late. they crying out for mercy because they acknowledge their sin, or just We're going to find out, yeah. And I think that's why Jeremiah is admonishing them to cry out to the Lord. But as we'll see it's a crying out because they want the circumstances to stop not necessarily the crying out of repentance but we'll see that you've read the book before haven't you okay yeah. okay they're crying out for the life of their little ones for God's mercy and in the last couple of verses Jeremiah appeals. remember remember sometimes when poetry does this sometimes Jeremiah is speaking in the first person but he's really representing the whole nation The city, right? And that happens largely in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And then other occasions, he's going to speak more personally just for himself. And I think this is a, a section where he's really thinking he's speaking more personally. Verse 20, he says, "'See, O Lord, and look, "'with whom have you dealt thus? "'Should women eat their offspring, "'the little ones who were born healthy? "'Should priest and prophet be slain "'in the sanctuary of the Lord? "'On the ground in the streets lie young and old?' my virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword you have slain them in the day of your anger you have slaughtered not sparing you have called as in the day of an appointed feast my terrors on every side and there was no one who escaped or survived in the day of the Lord's anger those whom I bore and reared my enemy annihilated them think about that Th- again put, put yourself in, in Jeremiah's sandals for a minute He spent four decades knowing this people, ministering this people, and like a good shepherd or prophet, he knows families. He knows the names of little ones. He's looking out and going, those people I see slaughtered in the street, I knew them personally. I had personal relationships with them. He says, I grew up with them. I ministered to them. I I knew them personally and intimately, and and, and likely not, not every person, but certainly many of them. And you can imagine Jeremiah's sorrow when he says, Those whom I bore and reared, my enemy has annihilated. And we'll talk about Jeremiah's struggle with feeling like a failure as a prophet. And we'll talk about that in another message. But uh, you can just imagine the horror of he's invested his whole life. He has loved these people well, he has told them the truth. When it cost him persecution and ridicule and death threats. And now he sees those people that he loved and cared for so dearly slaughtered in the streets. And grief and lament come out of him. Again, what do we do with this, guys? It's not a complicated takeaway today. Sin is horrible, sin is wicked. Sin is more evil than you and I will probably ever understand. In Scripture, we get pictures like this to help us. Let's walk away today more sober about our sin. And let's let's prize and value the gospel and what Christ did even more in light of that. And we can remember that as we go to our worship service, have communion today. Um, And so thankful that that, that God promises redemption in that. Uh, Father, thank you. These are sobering verses, and it's hard to even read them, let alone think about what they represent. Lord, thank you that you are a good and righteous God thank You that You are holy and that You do punish sin. We, The alternative is even worse. And yet we're so thankful that even though our, our sin is wicked and we deserve Your wrath, that You have made way for mercy. And we thank You that this, this book does not end in chapter 2. Um, that there is a reminder of your faithfulness, your kindness, your compassion, your redemption, and and the promise of what Jeremiah himself preached, that there would be a, a new covenant that you would bring where you would say to your people, your sins I will remember no more. And we thank you for that promise fulfilled one day in Christ that we celebrate and honor and remember today. Lord, we thank you that though our sin is a scarlet you you make it white as snow though it's horrible and wicked you redeem and forgive and draw us to yourself lord might that change how we live today how we prioritize things how we talk how we relate to people lord thank you for hard pictures like this in scripture that remind us of the value and amazing gift of your son we pray in his name